Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. And today we are talking about cool stuff and rules because I have Amy Schneider with me, the author of a fabulous new book called The Chicago Guide to Copy Editing Fiction. Amy is a copy editor, obviously, who specializes in fiction, has been copy editing for 28 years, has edited more than 500 books in anthologies, and now she has this fabulous book. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. You know, when um, when I think it was your publisher sent me the book, and I realized for the first time that I have never seen a book like this that specializes just in editing for fiction. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what, just let, let people know sort of what it is and how it came to be. Um, the seed for me at least was actually born from when I started giving uh, conference presentations and webinars and things about copy editing fiction. Um, and in the process of looking for resources to refer people to, I discovered that there was not a single book or resource on specifically copy editing fiction. There's all kinds of books about, you know, the big picture stuff, the world building and characterization and point of view and all those kind of things. Um, geared toward both editors and writers. Uh, and there are, of course, the general guides to copy editing fiction, uh, you know, like style manuals and the copy editor's handbook and things like that. But uh, there was nothing geared specifically to copy editing fiction. And I mentioned that in one of my sessions, and, of course, someone said, well, you should write it. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> may maybe I will. It, it took a little while to get started because I'm not naturally a writer, um, but eventually um, everything aligned and I uh, connected with University of Chicago Press and uh, that was just really a fabulous thing and uh, they got me going and so here's the book. And they were also surprised that how come no one, no, none of the university presses, you know, California or Chicago had never come up with a book like this before and obviously people are, are going crazy for it. You know, they really, uh, they really needed it. So um, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. When when I saw it, I thought I I have to talk to her about this, and and it's just a, a resource that anyone who edits fiction or who is you know I talk to a lot of people who are interested in getting into editing fiction, and I'm going to tell them now you have to get this book because it explains what what the job is and how you do it. Um, what do you think um, will be is would be most surprising to people? about fiction editing? Um, I, I thought about this question, and there are, there are two things, really. Um, one is that a lot of the rules kind of go out the window because it's not a matter of putting a certain style manual stamp on the manuscript and making it completely consistent with some sort of external rules um, because each manuscript is really its own style guide, and you have to follow that and work with that. Um, so it's it's really hard, I think, for especially for newer editors or people who have been working with nonfiction and really strict rules like working with journals and things to realize the the style manual is really just a guide, you know, um, and you really need to look at the author's individual voice, the character voices, and things like that to to make the book internally consistent rather than conforming to any particular set of rules. Um, and the other one is I think people aren't really aware of how much Fiction fact-checking needs to be done because um, anything that's mentioned in a novel 
It could be something related to the real world. It could be a fictionalized version of the real world. It could be completely made up. It might, there might be things that you can't look up anywhere else, and so you have to kind of create your own reference by making note of all those place names and people's names and, you know, organizations and cultures and, you know, societal uh, creations um, and just fictional languages. You have to notate all of that stuff because there's no external reference. Um, so that's, that's a lot of the work that goes into fiction copy editing. Right. As I was reading through it, I mean, it, it starts to feel overwhelming um, as you go through all the different things that even though it's fiction and the author has, you know, completely made it up, it still has to be consistent. And you have wonderful templates to help people um, sort of get their heads around how this might work. Um, you know, just thinking about, you know, maybe science fiction where the weeks aren't seven days long, you know, and you have to keep track of timelines and, and things like that. Or, um, yeah, I was just, it really surprised me how much internal fact checking was required. And then of course there's real life fact checking. If it's set in the real world, um, I know I've seen authors criticized for, you know, getting the wrong intersection in some city or something like that. Uh, what are some of the really big problems or funny or surprising problems that you've uncovered in a manuscript in all your years of editing? Um, well, timelines just in general are a big one. I think authors really struggle with timelines because I think a lot of times when they're writing, they'll say, well, um, the characters are going along and it's a beautiful Wednesday morning, but they don't really make a note of that that day is Wednesday. And then some other stuff happens and three or four days go by and now it's Friday because it has to be Friday night, but they forgot about that Wednesday in the background, even because it was just a throwaway line. Um, no, that actually, people are going to notice that, and they might get it in their head that, oh, that's Wednesday, and then another day and another day and another day. Or things like uh, people going to school on the weekends or things like that. You just really need to pay attention to all those little itty-bitty references that actually mean something. Some of the funnier things. Um, I had one author, this was years ago, one of the first uh, series authors that I did, and he had said in interviews uh, that he was very bad at plotting, and no one knew that better than his copy editor. <laughs> I helped him a lot. I had a lot of queries. Um, and my favorite catch from one of his books was that he had uh, someone was looking out of a kitchen window at night. The, it was brightly lit in the kitchen, and it was dark outside, and they saw something outside that was very important for them to see. It was a big plot point. Now, if you think about it, when you're in a brightly lit room at night and you look outside into the dark, you see yourself because the window acts as a mirror with that darkness behind it. So I told him, uh, this doesn't work in the real world. You need to turn on a light outside or you need to turn off the lights in the kitchen or you need to open the window or something because this physics does not work that way. And, and people who are <laughs> picturing the scene will notice that, and it'll pull them out of the story. So um, that's one of them. That's an element of horror, actually. Sometimes you're in the house, and there's someone right outside the window, and you, you can't see them because of the right. lighting issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then what else? You said dangling modifiers? Dangling modifiers, yeah. There was one. Um, I won't go into the particulars. It's a little... Um, 
adult book themed, but um, there was one in a romance novel where uh, our hero was meant to be doing something very tender to the lady, and what he was actually doing because of the dangler was something that would be actually quite painful. So uh, it was a, and it was early on in my career, and I had a tough time trying to word that query to say, um, he, this is what's really happening. You need to change this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something you emphasize too is being really kind to authors and just the way talk talk about like wording your queries. Mhm. Yeah, that's that's just always been really important, but especially I think with fiction because it it really is I think fiction authors especially really pour their heart and soul into and to me it's it's like some kind of sorcery that they can create these worlds just out of whole cloth, you know, they just make up these characters and these situations and they really, you know, hit our emotions and get us excited and angry and sad and make us fall in love. And, and to, to do that with words on a page is just amazing. So we don't really want to tromp on that. Um, we want to tread with caution and more ask rather than dictate um, and make sure that, that we're helping them tell the story the way they meant to tell it. Yeah, and it is it's a very different skill set than copy editing. You know, you think of writers in the big general category or people with who work with words, but creating stories is so different from the detail-oriented work of copy editing and keeping track of those timelines and and character names. Um, you know, I you talked in the book about, you know, sometimes a character name will change halfway through the book, maybe the author uh, change their mind or something like that. And then um, you had what I thought was a great suggestion as a reader. Occasionally, you know, I've entered a book where some names were confusing. Maybe there was a Susan and a Sarah and a Savannah all in the same book. And you talked about maybe suggesting to writers that they change those. Yeah. Um, and how, and how, I, I, think, I mean, how do writers generally feel about that? <laughs> um, well, I don't, I don't generally get to see the feedback because I work for publishers. And so I, I do my edit, I write my queries, I send it off and I never see it again. I do for a few clients, I get, I get the cleanup so that I can see the author's responses to queries. Or sometimes if I've had a book that I know had a lot of edits, I'll, you know, pick up a copy and go through the note, my notes and see, okay, what did they change? What didn't they? Um, <laughs> and the ones that I found that had that issue, I think they're generally fine with, if it's just a throwaway character, you know, if it's one who's mentioned only a few times, that's the one I'll recommend to change. You know, that character's name maybe wasn't chosen as carefully as a more prominent character. And they'll go, oh, yeah, you know, I've got 17 people in this book whose names start with M. Let's change a few so that it doesn't get too confusing. And uh, I think they're pretty receptive to that, especially if you, again, if you frame your query as saying it's going to distract readers, it's going to get confusing, um, they're going to get lost. So you can help the reader along by making this edit. Yeah, that's great. And you, you talked about um, editing books in a series a minute ago, and I imagine that has extra complexities. Do you want to talk about the challenges there? It does. I just finished editing a book in a series, and it's like the third or fourth one. And when I get in on the ground floor, when I start with the first book in the series, um, I'm always happy to take, this is the first book in a new series, yay, because then if I get the first book, I'm pretty assured of getting the second book and the third book and so on, so I can keep that continuity myself throughout. But for a series, I keep a cumulative style sheet so that I have all the information there, um, all, all together, um, I don't distinguish between major and minor characters because a minor character in book one might become a major character in book two. 
And then maybe in book four, someone from book two will show up again. So I always keep any small characters, they stay on the style sheet. I might rearrange it a little bit, you know, just so that they're maybe a little less prominent, they're further down the list. But they're still there so that I can do a search and see, okay, did I get this information right? Um, And so that I don't say I don't remember a character from a previous book, I don't go adding them as a new one and leaving off information that was provided before. So, yeah, there's a lot of cross-checking and double-checking and making sure that we carry over all that information, that we don't change anything uh, that that shouldn't be. Yeah, and I, I thought it was very helpful and interesting. You you talked about the different ways of, you know, as you're taking notes, creating your style sheet about the characters. Some people do it alphabetically, but you talked about possibly doing it in family groups or you know, regions in the book or something like that, because these are characters you might be seeing together more often than other times. I thought that Mm -hmm. was super interesting and I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. And it's been really helpful too, to catch some of those, you know, if someone's name changed, you know, if, if you don't have a place to look and see, well, is that what that person's name is or things like, well, there are supposed to be five brothers, but, There are six who are named. You're not going to catch that if you have just an alphabetical list, you know, last name first, first name last, or, you know, however you've got it organized. So I've always just done it that way from from day one is to group them by who their, what their most prominent relationships are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. <laughs> um, you you were talking before. One thing that popped into my head when we were talking about timelines is events like um, birthdays and holidays. You mentioned um, some things about Christmas in where well, you might need to address it or or not address it in particular books. And I it's often been surprising to me. Like I feel like we don't see a lot of birthday parties in fiction. And I've talked to authors about it and they talk about the pros and cons of talk of, of noting someone's birthday. And I, I just wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it can be good and bad. Like when, especially, um, things like even when they have like specific date lines, you know, like, uh, Thursday, November 4th, 3 PM. Okay. Well then that's a hard, piece of information that you definitely need to make sure it lines up. Whereas if you don't have those at all, if it just says Wednesday or, you know, whatever it is, um, there's a little more fluidity involved and it's not quite so, so tight or so critical. Um, so it's good and bad when I see those specific date lines or specific dates mentioned. Um, if it's, if the author has kept it all in line, it's great. Cause then I just check it off as I go along and say, okay, that lines up, that lines up, that lines up. But if it doesn't, then it can be a bit of a tangle to, you know, try and figure out what's going on. And either if I can fix it myself with a minor edit, or if I have to try and explain to the author, well, this is uh, messed up and here's why. And I'm not sure how to fix it because you've got all these important plot points that are intertwined and have to happen on this day or that. Um, you know, sometimes there's a fudge factor and sometimes there isn't. So it just all depends on what you're looking at. I think a lot of people think of copy editors as checking the commas and the capitalization, but, you know, you might point out that I think, you know, this character would actually do something special on Christmas or, you know, Kwanzaa or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that you might point out that like, oh, you know, we're talking about a school break and, 
it's winter break and, you know, these characters might actually be doing something important or having feelings about it that, that the author may have forgotten to mention or something like that. Yeah. And that's sort of a deeper level of fact checking that, that was, you know, covered in the book that I thought was really um, wonderful and, and helpful and not something that a lot of people would think of when they think of copy editing. Yeah. I mean, and it depends on the genre too. Like when I mention those kinds of things, I'm mostly thinking about the, like the homey, warm and fuzzy, you know, like, um, some women's fiction or the, you know, cozy, cozy mysteries and things like that. Those are going to be more holiday oriented and, you know, personal, personal holidays, birthdays and things like that. You know, not so much like, you know, a, a gritty thriller or an urban fantasy or something like that. Um, again, it's, it's all, it's all based on context, you know, so you might consider it in one book, but not in another. All right, like a cozy mystery set in a bakery. You know, it's going to be different than right. a starship. <laughs> yep, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's just a little. You can have a bakery on a starship, though. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing, I, you know, I've talked to a number of authors in the last couple of years, and they've mentioned that they're thinking a lot more about audiobooks and how their books are going to sound when they're read aloud. Is that something that comes up for you in copy editing too, as you're thinking about how things are put together? I had this exact question at the Red Pencil Conference last last week, something like that. Um, someone asked about audiobooks, and I do edit for traditional publishers who most certainly put their books out on Kindle or, or audiobooks and things like that. Um, but I've never really been asked to edit for that specifically, I do try to keep in mind, um, you know, sound issues, like if there's, uh, you know, a lot of alliteration or unintentional seeming rhyme or echo or things like that. Um, but yeah, the question was about dialogue tags. And the other thing is, is I don't listen to audiobooks, So I, I had to ask, I said, do they, do the narrators do different types of voices for different characters? Do they actually say that he said, she said, um, I don't know if that's something that they maybe have permission to maybe edit that out a little bit sometimes, or if it's a separate edit that's done that I do not know, but it's yeah. definitely something that I, I want to maybe start keeping in mind and maybe ask some of my clients, what, what do they do with that? That's a, that's a very good thing to bring up. Yeah. My understanding is that they're required to read every word. So they have to say all the he saids and she saids. And so that people are sometimes putting in fewer dialogue tags because they feel like it's maybe more distracting in the audiobooks, mm -hmm. which are becoming such a big part of the industry. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And they, too many dialogue tags can be distracting even in print. Um, and, and if you write your dialogue, you know, in a certain way, you don't need as many of them. So um, that could definitely be a good thing for, for all, you know, versions of books that come out. Um, maybe get, do away with a few more of those dialogue tags if they're, so they're not quite so distracting. Yeah, I liked how you emphasized the difference between dialogue tags and action beats. Do you want to talk about that a little bit for the listeners? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's the number one thing that confuses um, both writers and editors is understanding when we are... When it's a complete sentence and you're saying, you know, blah, 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 comma, he said, that's a complete sentence. It's a dialogue tag because the verb is describing the act of speech or producing language. You know, it, they could even be signing. They could be asking. They could be even thinking sometimes as opposed to an action beat because you can't shrug words or grimace them. 
Um, so you can't have, you know, he frowned. Um, we don't frown words. You can frown as you say words, but that's not the act of producing speech. So that's a separate sentence. You have a speech and then he frowned. And it just seemed really necessary to lay that all out. Here's how it works. Here's how you can fix it. Uh, and hopefully that'll be helpful for both writers and editors. Right. So a dialogue tag has to be something that you can make a sound like whispered, yelled, ideally said or asked. Right. But then again, um, it can depend. I've, I've edited books where um, I had specific instructions that anything can be a dialogue tag. So we might have he grimaced. Um, and then there are kind of the, the elliptical dialogue tags, things like he managed where the to say is implied or she tried um, or agreed, things like that. They're not necessarily verbs of utterance, but it's an idiom. It's idiomatic that that's what we say when we are describing what how someone said something. So again, it's is are there a lot of those kind of you know iffy dialogue tags? Then maybe leave them. We're not going to go through and change them all. Um, but if the author has been pretty pretty consistent about using sticking to said and asked and all the other verb producing you know word producing verbs, um, then maybe if we have a couple of those oddball ones, then go ahead and change them or query them. Yeah. I guess that falls under the kind of anything goes in fiction concept that there are, there are rules, but we can break almost all of them in some situations. I'm really curious if you know, how does it come about that you'll get a message, you'll get instructions from a publisher that says this author can get away with this specific thing that normally you would change. Like how does that happen? (laughs) Um, well, I do work on a lot of bestsellers, um, so I think they tend to get more of their way. And also, uh, I think it's sort of uh, a rule that the better a writer is, the better they are at breaking the rules. Um, so I think they get a lot more leeway, too. Um, if you really know what you're doing, you know when you can go astray. Because um, you're doing it deliberately for effect and not just because it, you think it's some sort of an implied voice. Um or, you know, to be trying to be creative and it doesn't quite work. Um, I find that the, the, the authors who have a better grasp of sentence structure and pacing and things like that, um, they tend to get more leeway. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bands across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as The Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. 
You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and bestselling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. I think another thing people would really enjoy hearing about is the semicolons and when to use them, when not to use them. I know people have such strong feelings about whether they like or hate semicolons. And you had a section on that in your book that I thought was interesting, too. (laughs) I really don't get, I mean, semicolons is just one facet of a whole um, philosophy of editing and writing where people get these, they get these rules that they think they have to apply across the board. Don't use the word that. Don't use the word very. Don't use passive voice. Don't use is, was, were verbs. Um, don't use semicolons. Um, I think when we when we hear those kinds of rules, we need to stop and think, is that really the case or is it just someone looking for a way to something that they can rely on so they can say, well, this is good writing because I did this or this or that. Um, and semicolons, I get it. I mean, it, I don't get hate against punctuation. It's just a dot on a page, you know. Um, <laughs> I, we, I mean, we don't we don't speak in. One rule people say is, well, we don't speak in semicolons, but we don't speak in parentheses or periods or commas either. It's just, they're just markers for the reader um, and to help us understand the structure of a sentence. And I I don't think we want to pepper fiction with semicolons. It is a little bit more formal and a lot of people don't know how to use them. Um, So that's, you know. But that goes right along with the rule in fiction that it's okay to have comma splices. It's okay to have fragments if that's what we need for pacing. I will occasionally put in a semicolon if I think it will help the reader make it through that sentence. And if a, if a period's going to be too much of a break, then I'll, I'll use that semicolon. That said, just this afternoon, I started the first read on one of my series authors who says, do not add semicolons. She doesn't want them. So... I'm not going to insert any, and I always do an extra pass for semicolons when I'm done to make sure there aren't any in there, because that's what the author wants, so that's what the author gets. Excellent. Excellent. And I know it's different in different genres, too. Like, literary fiction is much more likely to have semicolons than, you know, a military... YA or something, something yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, YA is really different. Um, Do you want to talk... What makes YA different? Um, I think it's going to have a more casual tone. Um, It's going to have a lot more, um, you know, slang and electronic communication type uh, things. Um, It's a lot more flexible, I think. 
I haven't done a lot of it, but whenever I've done it, it's always been a lot of fun and a nice break from some of the more serious adult stuff that I do. Yeah, I like YA too, and I always notice it's more first person too in mm-hmm. in YA. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right about that. You know, going back a little bit to the dialogue tags, another section you had that I thought was just especially good, and I've never seen it covered like this before. And it was just once you laid it out, it was so clear. Like imagined thoughts describing. So we know when someone says something, you put it in quotation marks, and you know he said, she said, whatever. Um, but what about telepathy? What about thoughts that someone is just thinking? Or what about um, this way, mouthed dialogue? Like if someone mouths help at you, but doesn't actually say it, like, how do you mm-hmm. format that? What talk, talk about your thinking about yeah. how that gets formatted. You know, there again, I mean, if given, and I think I put this in the book. So if I have no rules um, given to me, or the author hasn't really been consistent, I will pretty much just do quotation marks for spoken or signed speech and italic for everything else. Well, except for um, indirect thought. Um, You know, I thought she looked a little angry. You know, obviously that's just going to be like narration. Um, But yeah, direct thought, mouth dialogue, imagined, all that sort of stuff. I just, I prefer to, to reserve the quotation marks for things that are actually spoken or said or signed. But that's just me. Now, some authors will say they want um, mouth dialogue in quotation marks. They might want telepathic dialogue in quotation marks. Um, I, I, I try to encourage um, editors not to let the manuscript look too much like a ransom note by trying to choose an absolutely different method for each type of dialogue, because then it just gets kind of, kind of bonkers and kind of difficult to read. I do a series of books for a particular publisher that I'm fairly new working with them. And they have a lot of um, telepathic and like internal type dialogue that um, they use different kinds of brackets, depending on what type of communication it is. And so I just, and they actually, they use word styles also. So I stick a word style on those, apply the brackets and go on my merry way. Cause that's, that's their style. That's what they want. So, um, there's so much flexibility. I mean, I, I don't prescribe specifically anything across the board, but um, mostly I just want people to be aware of that these are different things that you're going to need to pay attention to and decide how they are treated already, or if there's nothing already applied, what are you going to do with them? Yeah, and that's why the specific style sheets for each project are so important, which I hadn't really realized as much before I read your book. The again, the book is the Chicago Guide to Copy Editing Fiction. I think every fiction editor should get this. Every aspiring fiction editor should get this. It is such a useful, practical, thorough guide. I'm just so happy I was able to talk with you about it, Amy. <laughs> um, where where can people where, where's the best place for people to find you online? Uh, well, there's my website, has all my social links on it, so that's just www.featherschneider.com. Um, and I'm, I try to hang out on social media. Obviously, it's been a little bit, uh, you know, hectic <laughs> lately. I haven't been on as much <laughs> as I would like. Um, I ha- actually had to hire a virtual assistant to help me um, you know, keep up with everything, and she's been great. Um, so, yeah, hopefully after all the hubbub Goodness. of this year, I can do a little bit more of my social media activity, uh, get back active in there. But, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm here. That's super. Well, I love 
I love seeing you online. And um, thank you so much for being here today. All right. Well, thank you so much. I was so excited to talk to you. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.